So hello everyone, good morning and welcome. Um, so thank you for tuning into this in on this beautiful Sunday morning and thank you for tuning into this session. I hope we all learn something new and just have a good time while at it. So before we begin, just a few just a few notes. First of all, um, this episode is going to be recorded and available on our YouTube as well as on our website. And you can listen to the audio on major um, streaming platforms for the podcast. Kindly turn off your videos and your mute your phones because that would help us with a better presentation. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to leave them in the chat box and we will get to those questions at the end of the conversation. Um, for our sketches, please, when you're done sketching, it'll be great if you can tag us at layers of design underscore with the hashtag layers of sketches, just so we can see all of your beautiful sketches and share them. Um, you can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Just look us up, Layers of Design, and we should pop up. Lastly, you can listen to this episode and all other episodes um, on major podcast platforms, either Apple or Spotify. Okay, so just a bit about us. So Layers of Design started in 2019, and we started as a podcast. We started this platform to share experiences of inspiring designers. Um, just This was just in the hope that we inspire the design profession. We recently became Layers of Design Creative Studio, which is a multidisciplinary studio that is focused on global community development and enrichment through design and architecture. We are passionate about design and designers that create an impact in society through their work. We host, um, no, we host, we participate in design competitions. We create podcast episodes and we're always looking to engage in our communities through volunteer experiences. And it's, I'm the founder of Layers of Design and the lead designer. And then I have Gabriel Diaz, who is also a lead designer and the producer for the podcast episodes. So great to sketch it out. I know I've been, you know, talking about this this whole week. Sketch It Out is a new series that's hosted by us, and the idea is for us to invite, you know, everyone to be a part of our conversations with our guests while sketching. So as you, you may have seen, this is the poster for today, and this episode we have with us David Ripkind, who, um, and we will be talking about how architecture represents power relationships. So to introduce our special guest, David Ripkind. David Ripkind is a knowledgeable architect and historian who teaches architecture history and theory at Florida International University. We'll get to know him a bit more today, but to quickly add, he, he plays a vital role in inspiring and educating students in architecture history, including myself. His curiosity and excitement while teaching keeps students and peers intrigued, and he's a professor that deserves to be celebrated. He's undoubtedly the best architecture history professor. So welcome, David Ripkind. It is a great pleasure to have you, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Abehi. Such a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> of course. So um, let's start from the beginning. What got you into architecture and design? So I got really lucky. I uh, discovered architecture in 10th grade when I was in high school because um, I went to a, a magnet high school for uh, engineering and science. It was a public school in Philadelphia. And I think that they thought that they could get us interested in art if they taught art in a way that was kind of scientific or engineering-ish. Mm -hmm. So it was a class about architecture and it was um, with Mrs. Nelson, right? So this is a long time ago, but um, it was basically the first time I started thinking about the built environment. And since I was living in a city that has a really extraordinary, uh, just a, a kind of an amazing heritage of um, urban spaces and buildings, it, once it, it piqued my interest, I couldn't stop looking around and, you know, and I was the kind of person who loved drawing, but also thinking about um, social relationships. So that got me interested in architecture. Oh. And then I guess the other big move then was that, you know, I studied architecture originally as an undergraduate at the Boston Architectural Center and practiced for a number of years. But then I also started to get a little bit um, 
disillusioned with the limitations of architectural practice. And that's when I decided to go back to school and I went to graduate school first for a master's degree and then later for a PhD in architectural history. And so I've been mostly working as a historian um, and then a little bit as a designer uh, ever since. Oh, very nice. And how is your, and what, what are some passions, I guess, what are some of the passions you have for the profession? I mean, there's a lot of things. So one is that it's both what we do like as an academic, it's what we do within the profession and then what we do outside. So what we do inside is actually it's the relationship that I have with you and you know, all of these fantastic students, or former students right now, young professionals who are um, on, this, uh, on this call, right? The, it's the opportunity to work with people who are themselves very passionate about the world and to help them realize their own capacity for shaping it. So I love doing that within the profession. And then outside, I really love being able to share what we do in architecture with people outside. Um, and I have oppor different opportunities to do that through different organizations and stuff. And I love that. I love talking about architecture and urbanism with people who are interested but are not within our profession. And sharing that is, I mean, it's such a treat. So I really like doing that. <laughs> well, that, that's great. I mean, personally, and I know a lot of my um, colleagues now, everyone talks about you and how great your class and how much we learned from it. So thank you for that and for sharing your passion with us. Um, so everyone knows we're going to be sketching the 1925 Miami-Dade Courthouse. And I know, David Rukan, you had mentioned that you had a sketching technique. Maybe you can show that to us now. Sure. I was going to... Um... And yeah, if you can uh, leave the image as big as possible, I was just gonna invite everybody to start uh, sketching out the building. And what I was gonna recommend was that, um, especially if, it, if, if it's been a while, that the easiest way to, I mean, part of the reason why I like this building is because of its three-dimensional composition. Mm -hmm. And it's a seemingly really simple building, right? It's a tower on top of a two-staged two base. Um, but when you start drawing it out, you realize how complex it is. Um, it's, you know, it's a series of boxes that are piled one on top of the other. But as you start um, sketching it out, you realize that there's you know, some really kind of complex things about it. And one thing I'll mention about the image is that it is, it's a really squeezed, you know, wide angle kind of view. It's basically mm -hmm. what my iPhone does. Um, but it's, um, it, it actually, the building, you kind of experience the building a lot like that because it is now, you know, surrounded by uh, buildings on most sides. And so you tend to see it like this, like, you know, with your head back, sort of craning upward, looking at it. Mm -hmm. But I'm just, um, so one thing I'd suggest too, as you sketch, and I'm just sort of sketching it out while I talk um, with you guys, is just to draw it as a series of, um, as a series of boxes and then you start to realize that there's, that the boxes have pieces um, subtracted from them, right? So you start to cut pieces out of the boxes. And then the I other thing it so does. One second, are you um, sketching it out? Do you want to show us the sketches? Cause I'm not yeah, sure. I'll do, oh, you know what? I'll do that real fast. So I'll show you some, what I'm doing. Let me just do one more thing here. Let me stop sharing so, for a I, I was, um, that's it. So I was just starting to sketch it and I don't think I can draw like backwards. No, I, I can't do that. But the, <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish I had like the overhead camera at, in a classroom to show oh, you guys this. But so basically, you know, you just, you start um, putting it together as like a series of boxes. So there's the base um, and I would, um, and I won't, won't finish this until I start to figure out the other proportions. And then the middle part is where it starts to get fun. Cause the middle part is also a rectangular box but it's got this corner that's cut out of it over here. So I usually draw this thing as a solid box and then I carve out this piece and then I start constructing the tower above. And, um, and so it's really, it's that simple as a, as a composition. So if you start, you know, sketching this thing, you know, you, uh, whatever, you start to see how this thing, one other thing I'll mention and then we can go back to drawing is that notice where um, all the verticals are, because even though the building is symmetrical and two axes, right? So it's basically, it's a square in plan and it's a series of concentric squares. When you see it from an angle, it seems like the tower is set all the way to one side. 
And so you get this cascading effect down here where these guys seem much, much longer. And that's where I, I always say, just trust what your eyes are telling you, right? When you see these things uh, organized like that, even though you know the building is symmetrical, when you look at it three-dimensionally, it appears as if it's off balance. And draw it that way, right? Draw it the, the way that you see it. So if you go back to the big image, we can just um, start sketching some more and then and then also, um, if there's questions in the chat I'm about how to draw it, I'm really happy to, uh, to answer those. So normally, too, if um, we were drawing this uh, live, um, you know, I'd be out on the site with people, and, and I'm just um, drawing some more here. Um, I'd be out there and sort of like talking to people about the, the building and what they're seeing. And usually people, you know, it's, it's not we're not drawing this photographically, right? But, mm -hmm. um, but so I'm just gonna do some more quick sketching on my paper here. And then yeah, the other fun thing is that as you get up higher in the tower, those pieces that are kind of carved out and all get really interesting. They're kind of chamfered up at the top. And then the part that's missing, the part that we can't really see in this photograph is at the very top of the building is this kind of funky ziggurat. So it's like a, a stepped mm -hmm. pyramid. And you see that like when you're driving by on I-95, um, there's often like vultures hanging out up there. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty cool building. And it's fun too, because um, the basic composition of the building is kind of cool, but then there's also, um, and I'm just sketching it out a little bit more here too, that the basic composition is fun, but then you also um, get some really interesting details in it too like the, the, all the classical ornament and stuff. And then way down at the, oh, and then the other thing I have to apologize for is I did cut off the base, but you can kind of guess just about how big it is. That is the base of the build. Oh yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah, all the way to the right. It's cut off a little bit. And then I'm just drawing a little bit more here and then I'll go back. And then as you draw it too, you start to see that the, even though the building is for the most part symmetrical on two axes, there's some slight differences. So for example, in the image that you're showing now, the right-hand side that we're looking at is the main entry. And they have those entries on the two sides. We're looking at the south side on the right. There's also an entrance on the north side. And both of those have these kind of amazing inset porches. But on the two other sides, the east and west sides, there's still these kind of implied columns there. They're half columns. But they, um, uh, but there's no, um, no entrances there. So already the building starts to do some things at the base that are kind of interesting. It starts to guide you as far as how you enter it. And then the part that we're also not quite seeing as well here is that it has these fairly monumental staircases um, at, the, at the base, especially on the south and north sides. And those staircases just kind of serve to announce that you know, this is a really important building, it's a civic building. Um, So I'm just doing a really, really fast sketch here and then I'll show it to you in a sec. And so this is just getting back to that um, idea of seeing the building starting out just in terms of composition as a series of boxes that are stacked on top of each other. And then those boxes are then sort of, um, you extract, you subtract little pieces of them like the corners in the um in the the second stage here or the corners up at the top of the the tower and then as you start to pull those away you also start to realize that there are things like the way that this um these middle portions of the tower are accentuated it's not much it's just that the 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 stone cladding of the building pops out a few inches but it's enough to give it this extra kind of verticality right like it sort of emphasizes it being a, a really tall thin building even though the building isn't really that tall So it's kind of neat. The other thing too about this building, as you start to draw it, you realize, well, you know, those classical buildings that it's based on, none of them were towers, right? There's no skyscrapers in ancient Greece, we're pretty sure. So one of the things that the uh, architect had to do was figure out a way to make a building that was tall and slender, but using these classical elements, which is kind of a contradiction. But what they end up doing is creating these little temples at the top of the building, these kind of funny little Doric temples. And those are themselves the, um, the sort of the extrusion vertically of those 
center portions of the tower. It's pretty groovy. And so yeah, you can also, as you're, um, as you're drawing it, you can um, start to add that level of detail up at the top. I'm just gonna do that now. And the, another thing you start to notice probably as you're drawing it is that there's um, motifs that are repeated over and over. So on the base, there are you know, these big two-story columns um, and then one story of windows above that. Then on the part above that, you also get those monumental columns in the center. And it's a way also of breaking up the mass of that middle part of the building. And then up above that is that thing where you have the little bits in the center that the sort of the center three windows that pop out in the tower. And then those go all the way up into those little temples up at the top. So there are different really subtle ways that the architect is uh, breaking up the facade in order to de-emphasize how horizontal the thing is and to emphasize how vertical it is. Let me see. Oh, nice. There you go. Oh, I was muted. But yeah, this is my sketch coming along. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as everyone is sketching, and I'm just, I'm going to leave this up for, you know, for us to sketch and I'm going to be in conversation with you. So we're discussing how architecture represents power relationships. I know we had talked about this a little mm. bit before, but can you explain why this particular topic, why you decided yeah. to, ask to talk about this topic and why it's important for us to address or have this conversation in today's climate? So it's, it starts with, I mean, it's just how I think about buildings and I've always been curious about the ways that buildings represent power and cultures um, societies, ideas, even the way they represent philosophy. And I remember that even as a, like a first year architecture student when I was like 17, I was already thinking about that. Um, and it seemed like for me a natural way to think about buildings. But I also know that the more time I spend in the profession, that for a lot of people, um, that idea that buildings represent larger abstract things, whether it's philosophical ideas or transcendental ideas or um, even something like power relationships in a society. For a lot of people, that's not so obvious. And so it's something that I wanted to talk about, especially that given today, we're talking so much within academia and within the profession about the role that architecture plays in a society that it is still very much segregated, right? In a society in which there are still these kind of fundamental inequalities. Um, and it's, so it's something that we do need to talk about in terms of architecture, because we talk about it in the profession, right? We talk about how the profession and academia, how um, some groups are underrepresented um, and how um, we have to basically increase the numbers of students and faculty um, and also um, to, to mentor and to advance and promote um, people, women, people of color and so on. But what we don't talk about are the very structural things within architecture that make that so difficult. Like what are the things about building itself and about the built environment that always reinforce these unequal relationships? And so it's very useful for us to talk about that in the case of buildings. This one's easy because this is a building that represents state power, right? I mean, it's the county courthouse. So it's the way that the, the government represents its power um, in the city. But you can also see these power relationships in every work of architecture or urban design, even if there was never a designer involved. I mean, and it starts with just the way we define a building. A building is typically defined as a set of walls, and those walls have an inside and an outside. The inside is the included space, and the outside is excluded. And the right, the privilege to enter that included zone, confers upon people some kind of importance. Sometimes it's just the matter of I belong in my house and I alone control who comes into my house. And that's a basic power relationship. Yeah. But you think about who else and who has the right to enter a building or who's prevented from ever leaving that building, you know, in the case of a prison. And so buildings are all always talk about power relationships. Who's allowed to pass through various portals? 
And in the case of a courthouse building like this, and also this building was built as a courthouse, but also it served as city hall from 1928 until the 1950s. And so this was a building where there were, you know, there, there are a series of chambers inside the building that are increasingly uh, reserved or exclusive to judges and to the mayor, people like that. And the building already announces that from the outside because it, the building has these very simple hierarchies, those um, symmetries always emphasize whatever is in the center of the building. Symmetry always does that. It always tells you that whatever's in the center is privileged and whatever's on the periphery is less important. And in the case of this building, there are these major courtroom spaces and then um, city offices that because of their importance within the building and their arrangement, just by the symmetry inside the building, they tell you how important those spaces are as far as determining um, uh, basically the, the rule of law or um, civic governance in the city. And so those are some of the, the basic ways that buildings represent power. Yeah. This one also, I, I just want to point out too that if we were set the Wayback Machine to 1928 when this, was when this was completed, it was the tallest building in Miami by far. And so this was a building that supposedly, according to newspaper accounts, you could see it from 100 miles out at sea when the beacon at the top was lit. Um, so it was a building that, you know, just by its sheer scale, really represented the city. And it was right next to the major train station. Um, so when you first entered the city on Flagler's Railroad, this was, the, you know, you come out of the train and boom, you know, your head kind of goes back and you look up at this, um, this symbol of power. Hmm. Well, that was a great like, breakdown for, the, for this particular building and its relation to how, you know, it's how it starts to define power. Um, talking, I personally, I'm really intrigued by this, um, this particular topic, because like you said, architecture, it literally has the power to shape our built environment, because that's what it does. And, you know, just right down to the bridges, or, or just even creating walls, like back then, how bridges, or the reasons bridges were created, even the one-way street. So for example, bridges were created, created to prevent, you know, people of color from accessing, um, getting direct access into a particular neighborhood, a, a white populated neighborhood. Yes. And it was also used as a dividers. I mean, even in Miami, we have some cases where a whole community was destroyed to construct the, the bridges, right? And this, just the construction of the bridge under the guise of keeping a neighborhood safer or of promoting this seclusion, that alone just shows how architecture has the power to divide a community. And I do think as, you know, I do think the profession is not, hasn't really been held accountable per se, because I don't think a lot of people even realize the power that architecture has. Yes. One thing I'll mention about architecture too that makes it so so useful, um, but also so potentially dangerous, is that it um, that it acts upon us in a way that is um, that we're often not conscious of. So as opposed to somebody who co goes and tells you a story verbally, then you're conscious of them telling you a story. But buildings do that in a way that we always kind of receive almost in a uh, a state of distraction, right? So just walking the city naturalizes or internalizes some relationships that we don't even think about. Yeah. And so in the case of um, the spatial segregation that's a part of something like racial segregation, it becomes naturalized. The idea that, um, that people live in different neighborhoods because of their ethnicity or their race um, or their uh, access to wealth or whatever, those, that idea becomes naturalized. It becomes internalized into us because the built environment reinforces it especially because of the way those neighborhoods are separated from each other by things that seem natural, like roads or highways and so on. The way some places are connected, others are divided. Um, even things like the way that some neighborhoods have this really dense tree canopy and, and all, and other neighborhoods have very few trees. Those kinds of things, very often, they, um, the simple existence of them in the built environment naturalizes them, uh, naturalizes that idea. And people don't reflect on it critically. It's as if things are supposed to be that way. So that's one thing that architecture does, you know, is, is it, it naturalizes things that are not natural. They're very much constructed and cultural. Hmm. 
you know, I sometimes I wonder when or how that even started to happen. <laughs> like, um, you know, just us as architects, because we do have the power to design those spaces. And um, overall, you know, we're taught that our goal is to protect, you know, the health and safety of the built environment and of our communities. So I guess I wonder, like, when did people start seeing, using architecture to, I guess, to project their own, I don't know, for their own benefits or to project their own racial biases? You know, it's always been, um, power relationships are innate to architecture. It's the way that architecture has always operated. Um, and even remember that the simplest shelters also still go back to that, that basic paradigm that there's an included area and an excluded area. Um, and even if you're just building yourself a, um, a hut or even a, um, uh, something mobile like a, a tent, um, it has an included area and an excluded area. And then when you start to put a, a group of tents together, um, because it's you know, a family of nomads, Mm -hmm. That too, that arrangement of tents also has included areas and excluded areas. So there's always relationships of power um, that are encoded into architecture. Even the simplest and most ephemeral architecture has that. But the idea of um, using architecture to represent race and racial relationships really starts with the Enlightenment at the end of the 17th century, the late 17th century. And that's also one of the reasons why I was interested in this building, because this building is, you know, this very self-consciously classical building. And I mean, what I mean by self-conscious is that, you know, classicism is not innate to the Americas. It wasn't like the Greeks or the Romans came here 2,000 yeah. years ago. So anytime you see a building that uses classical elements, like this building does with its columns and ornamentation and so on, it's a self-conscious choice by the architect and by the client, by the people who build, everyone who's responsible for the project. It's a self-conscious choice to use that classicism to say something. And in the 1920s, to be fair, most of the time, it wasn't really that well thought out. I mean, it was, classicism was a sort of a default way of saying, okay, this is a civic building. This is about government, yada, yada, you know. But, um, but there are some other things about this too that have to do with, um, national identity and one of them is that remember that america in the 1920s when this building was built was going through a fundamental change we had just 1920 was the year that for the first time the u.s census showed the country being predominantly urban instead of predominantly rural so for 150 years of independence we had been this rural country of predominantly farmers suddenly we were predominantly urban um, industrial workers and along with that change came other demographic changes. So there was internal migration, mostly African-Americans as part of the great migration, moving into American cities, and also immigration of people coming from everywhere, from Ireland and Poland and China. You had all these Jews coming from all over the diaspora. Um, so suddenly, and then, you, and especially in a place like Miami, you also have a lot of um, immigrants and sort of migrants and um, expats who are coming from all over the Spanish and Portuguese speaking worlds. So you have this like really rich diversity in American cities. But I think a lot of people in positions of power also saw that as a kind of a Babel-like um, chaotic realm. Mm. And the danger for some civic leaders was that America would lose its cohesion. Um, and remember, this is only two generations removed from the Civil War. And so yeah. beginning in the 1890s, which is only one generation removed from the Civil War, they started using neoclassical architecture as a sort of a default mode for expressing a sort of a combined national identity. It sort of was the idea of creating unity out of all that diversity. But what it tended to do was privilege one very specific notion of um, unified identity. And it was that whole sort of realm of power that came, that was represented by classical architecture, but was really rooted in the Enlightenment ideals of the 17th and 18th centuries. And to be fair, those Enlightenment ideals included the idea of national self-determination, right? Things like the idea that you know, all men are created equal. That's a very much Enlightenment idea. The problem with the Enlightenment, it was that it was also the period of colonialism. And um, uh, um, well, so you've got this balance, right? So you've got, on the one hand, national self-determination, on the other hand, colonialism. You've got this idea of universal liberty, but at the same time, you've got slavery, right? And those contradictions that are sort of wrapped up in the, uh, in the Enlightenment 
the way that architects dealt with it was by creating a classical or a neoclassical architecture that was meant to represent some kind of idea of universal values. But in a realm, in a world where you're still dealing with colonial exploitation and the enslavement of humans, that idea of universal values is understood to only apply to some people. Right. And so that, those are sort of the ways that race is already encoded into something like the neoclassicism of, um, you know, of our time. Oh, yeah. wow. That's very interesting. I definitely learned something today. It's, it, remind, it takes me back to the history classes. So yes. with that, what would you say the role of architecture is in communities? So one thing is we have to reflect on these histories, right? This idea that in our at our very it's sort of at the very essence of architecture is this way in which we are always um, reinforcing power relationships, whether it's state power in the case of government or religious power or institutional power or um, uh, the power of commerce and capitalism. We're always reinforcing those power relationships, and when we do no matter how much we try not to, we're also always in some way reinforcing the inequities of our system. So as architects, we just have to be, we have to start out by being conscious of that. We have to be willing to be critical of that as well, right? And you get a lot of that like in the art world, for instance, a lot of artists, curators, who are very concerned about the fact that they also represent and reinforce um, these kinds of power elites um, through the art world. Um, so once we're conscious of that, then we can start to act upon it critically. And one thing we can do in architecture is to challenge the very notion of patronage. Who gets to be a client? I mean, typically we don't even think about it. In architecture school, yeah. think about how many studios you took. Well, I know how many studios you took. <laughs> think about how many studios you took. And every time there's just some kind of mythical client who wants you to build, I don't know, a really nice uh, building that's a, a chicken coop that also has space for modern art or something like that. But there's always some client who's going to pay for it. And we never ask, who, who are these people? Well, we rarely ask, who are these people who, ask, who yeah. have the right to shape the built environment? As opposed um, to, who are the people who inhabit that built environment? And I think it, bringing up the clients is a great point because I think our profession is, you know, it's almost dependent on our clients. Just, just from, from the financial aspect too, right? So a, a lot of people could also be thinking, oh, well, you know, I need to eat too. So why don't I just take that, but take the, take on a client, but then what if that client doesn't stand for your beliefs or, you know, the, you don't feel like they are ethically responsible. So the challenge becomes, what do you do in that situation? Cause at the end of the day, the client feels the need to get his, um, his project built. Yes. And I, I should say too, that's why I also, I, I am, you know, I, I try not to be critical of colleagues who do work that can be problematic, right? So at this point, like I'm even, I'm working on a project now, I'm designing another single family house. And I had promised myself I would never do another single family house because single family houses are implicated in the whole process of sprawl there, um, which means that even if this house is a net zero house, which it's intended to be, the client is still gonna drive there in their pickup truck, right? I mean, it's still, <laughs> problematic environmentally. Plus it's also part of sprawl, which is also part of um, racial segregation. So I promised myself I was never gonna do another single family house and here I am doing another single family house. And so I don't condemn colleagues who work on that. I understand that, yeah, part of it is putting food on the table. But at the same time, I do feel like we need as a profession to call out um, our colleagues who are doing work that is problematic. You know, part of the, there's a big debate now within the AIA as to whether um, AIA members should be allowed to design certain um, carceral, um, you know, uh, prison facilities, right? Yeah. Um, if any at all. Um, but also I have a problem with um, architects who we often think, you know, uncritically, hey, you're a member of the avant-garde, you should come and speak to our young students, right? Um, and yet these, there are certain, let's call them, self-styled avant-garde offices that have made a lot of money by building projects for let's call them despotic dictators um, or really problematic um, uh, sort of titans of industry 
And so if you are designing a building, and the reason why this is a problem is that when you one of these avant-gardist firms and you're doing a building for the dictator of Azerbaijan or for the regime in Beijing or Qatar, the problem is that what you're doing is you're allowing them to take architecture, especially progressive architecture, and use that to legitimize their governmental system. And so there are these practices, and I, mean, I won't call them out now, but they're doing these buildings that basically are being used as part of the state propaganda apparatus for um, authoritarian regimes. Um, and these are architects whose work I like, right? I mean, there's a certain well-known British architect who just finished the new, built, new airport in Beijing, which was used to uh, celebrate the 70th anniversary of the, the, you know, the regime's uh, rise. It replaced an earlier airport that's only 10 years old by another very avant-garde firm. I mean, you can look them up. But anyway, but the point is, is that these projects um, are not just, each one of these architects is convincing themselves that by doing something that's good, that's beautiful, that's sustainable or whatever, that they're doing something that's a net good to the world. And that's not necessarily the case. They're allowing architecture to be used the same way that it was used by Southern plantation owners in the antebellum period, where antebellum um, plantation owners used neoclassical architecture, like Palladian architecture, to build their plantation houses as a way of convincing themselves that they had this higher culture that prevented them from being uh, charged with barbarism because they also um, kept people in slavery. And so this is the, the problem is that if architecture is going to be used as a way of concealing um, authoritarian regimes, for example, then I think we have to be willing to call out the practitioners who do that because we can't just keep celebrating them because their their work is you know, whatever so yeah, remarkable. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's where we where we all sort of get lost. We see this beautiful building and we forget to really analyze, okay, why is that building there? And, you know, the style that was used and who exactly it is the building for. Um, I think you already touched on this, but how can we begin or how can we, yes, how can we begin to teach or educate architects and designers, um, even the shapers of the built environment, how can we begin to teach them to fully understand and take responsibility? for the cities that they create? The first part starts with humility. Um, it's really important for us to be humble about um, uh, our own agency and about what we do control and what we can control and what we can contribute. One of the other problems with architecture, and, it's, and I gotta say this is a problem with the way that I teach architectural history, is that I inadvertently reinforce this idea that the architect is this kind of really powerful technocrat who can create form that's then realized by builders, right? So like in the case of this building that I'm showing you guys, I can tell you about the, um, the architect. He was a guy from Atlanta. The funny thing was that um, uh, about this idea of humility is that we have to be um, humble in the, in the way that we understand how we shape uh, the world and that the way that an architect goes into a project shouldn't be that I have, I have really strong ideas about how to build the I don't know, a chicken coop filled with modern art or some, whatever the absurd example is. But instead, we need to listen to communities. We need hey there. So I hope you're enjoying our first episode in the Sketch It Out series. So real quick, our next episode for this series is going to be on the 2nd of August. And if you're interested in knowing more about our upcoming episodes a week before, please visit our website at layersofdesign.online and subscribe to our mailing list. Now for this episode, don't forget to sketch along and use hashtag layers of sketches so we can see your work. You can find the image that we're sketching, which is the 1925 Miami-Dade Courthouse on our website. Now, let's get back to this amazing conversation with David Rifkind. So the hard part, and this, I'd be really happy to open this up for a conversation with everybody else, is this what we do as architects. Mm -hmm. um, and it really starts with listening. I think it's probably the thing that we do the worst thing in academia is, is we don't teach our students to listen enough, to listen to communities, to listen to um, the people who are affected by um, the work that we do as designers. And I think that's probably the, the most important thing that we can do is, you know, that whole process of learning to listen um, 
sort of and, and embracing that, embracing um, the uncertainty, the fact that we'll never fully understand the lives of other people, but that we can empathize as much as possible. I think that that's really important. The other thing too, if I can recommend, because I because there's some amazing uh, people on this call. Um, and I just wanted to say too, that the other thing that you can do is also challenge uh, the notion of how you're supposed to practice as an architect. So on the one hand, you do need to work for firms, you need to get licensed, um, because that gives you extraordinary um, power uh, in our profession. But once you're licensed, you can also do a lot of work where you don't really wait around for a client to approach you or go after you know, RFPs that are submitted by potential clients. You can actually create projects. And that's where I would encourage people to build relationships with nonprofits, with community organizations, and start to see how you can help be a part of the way that they, um, the way that they organize, the way that they do what they do. Even if it's a group that doesn't work traditionally in the built environment, um, they, there's ways that you as an architect can help them, basically taking what you understand about the organization of space, about logistics, about organization, things like that, and help or you know um, nonprofits, community development groups, things like that. That's what I would say is um, as much as possible, build relationships with people who are doing good work and seeing how you can participate in that and use what you've learned as a professional. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yes, I completely agree. I think this is a discussion that, you know, we as the younger generation also needs to, you know, continue having with ourselves and be cautious of either who we work for or who we intend to work for. Yeah. Um, just give me one sec. And I'm just sketching as we're talking. Yeah. Okay. So I have some more questions for you. And this is sure. based on your career. What are some of your biggest career influences or what have been some of your biggest career influences? Oh. So um, even though I had this question in advance, I'm still not fully prepared for it because I keep changing my answer in my head. And one is, all right, so mentors are important. And so I would really strongly recommend seeking out mentors at every level. Don't ever stop. And so the people who've gotten me to where I am include some fantastic mentors as teachers. Um, Mrs. Nelson, I mentioned my 10th grade teacher, my undergraduate um, thesis advisor, Eitan Fitchman, my master's thesis advisor, uh, Alberto Perez Gomez, and then the people who um, mentored me as a doctoral student, especially Mary McLeod, they absolutely, um, impressed on me a, a number of things and not just how to think about architecture or write or de design but also um, uh, how to um, really how to understand the positive change that I can make in the world so mentors are important and then I've also had some fantastic professional mentors as well um, from when I practiced architecture and then now um, as an academic so mentors are really really important the other thing too is just to continue the things that you learned as a student about the importance of travel and the importance mm -hmm. of reading. Just keep doing that, right? Because you keep discovering new things that will transform the way that you think about the world. And so that's one thing I've continued to do. And um, okay, so another question, can you suggest, let me say two good books that are must reads for, um, for young designers or architects? So I would say, especially for like, even if you are a first year student, there's two books about urbanism that I would start with because I think it's to understand architecture, you really start with the city. Uh, and so um, back in 1967, um, Edmund Bacon, who was the uh, city planner for Philadelphia and the father of uh, Kevin Bacon, um, Edmund Bacon uh, published a book called The Design of Cities, which I first encountered as a teenager before I even got to architecture school. And to this day, it really has impacted the way that I see um, urban space. And then soon after that was published, um, that was in 67 and 69, Steen Eiler Rasmussen, the Danish architect and professor, published um, a book called Towns and Cities. And that's also just a, a sort of a really phenomenal 
simple and very accessible overview of the organization of Western cities. And I think they're both tremendous books. Um, and then I would just continue to read about urbanism, right? Like the sort of um, remarkable work by Spiro Kostov um, and others. It's, that's where I would start is with books about urbanism because to understand buildings, you really have to understand the entire um, kind of cultural context of them. And for me, that's always the city. Um, okay, so real quick, before we keep going, does anyone, do, does anyone have any questions either uh, about your sketch or the conversation that we've been having? I'm just going Yes. Okay. So they're asking um, if we can have the titles of the books again. Oh, yeah. Let, I'll type them out. So um, uh, Edmund Aiken. And then um, but da -da, Steen Eiler. I'm guessing this is how the name is spelled because it's Danish. Oh, wait a second. Actually, I'm just going to look it up real fast. Yeah. So it's, yeah, Edmund Bacon, The Design of Cities, and Steenhuyler Rasmussen, Towns and Cities. And, okay, thank you for that. We got That's where another I would start. question. How can we enact policy change at the county planning level? Oh, that's a great question, Claudia. Um, so um, there's been, so at the count, the city and the county are really important because as you already understand, um, that's where zoning is set, is by the city and by the county. Uh, and those zoning um, decisions are important because they really shape our cities, right? Like, I mean, as an individual architect, you drive around Miami and you just see like gas stations everywhere and single story strip malls and it's kind of awful. And the, the decisions about how those end up there are, are made by city and county level administrators. So the, the way to start is by attending the county commission meetings and getting an idea of, uh, which you can do now virtually, right? So if you go to the county and city commission meetings virtually, you hear about how um, things are discussed. It's a lengthy process, but one of the things you can do is to start to make, um, sort of build consensus around the idea of changing zoning. Now that takes a long time. That was how like the, the Miami 21 zoning changes, that, that took years of um, civic group pressure and then professional um, uh, um, involvement in the process. It does take, those processes do take a long time, like usually years. But what you can do is if you can get enough, um, if you can build up enough consensus among other members of the community, you can get um, commissioners to uh, propose changes um, in things like zoning, especially zoning is really big. But there's other things you can do too, like um, at the county level, because the county is responsible for most of the major roads in the county, not all of them, because some of them are controlled by the state, but most major roads are controlled by the city. And right now, most major roads are this kind of awful um, like landscape of concrete and asphalt. Um, but the, um, the county is actually, the, the planning officials who are responsible for streets are actually very amenable to transforming them according to the principles of um, complete streets, for example. And so you can also start to just inquire as to who are the people who you can start a conversation with, like who's responsible for um, how streets are designed and organized, and then start to, again, build consensus among stakeholders, like business owners, community members, civic groups for those changes. And what I found is that people at the county level are really amenable to those discussions. There's also some really wonderful county commissioners too. Um, I worked with Eileen Higgins uh, when I was chair of landscape architecture on a design studio project for a whole semester. And so there, there's a lot of really sympathetic ears um, in the county government. Very nice. 
Um, does anyone else have any questions? Question? If not, we can, I mean, we can keep sketching. <laughs> if anyone wants to yeah. show their sketches, just turn on your video. I want to see. Let me stop sharing my screen for a second. Hey, Daniela. Hi. Wow. That's beautiful. Wow. And you've got notes on it, too. That's pretty cool. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> and she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Miss Daniela. <laughs> I do, too. And I'll share mine. I don't have all the windows on it yet, but. Oh, hey. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. I rarely, when I draw this thing, I rarely get to the point where I'm drawing windows. Yeah, I'm just trying to get the basics down. Hey, guys. I miss you all. How are hey. You? Hey. Here's my sketch. Oh. Kind of light. Very nice. Nice. <laughs> And you're using graphite. Nice. Do you usually draw with ink or how do you? I mostly do. Like I use the, um, the Pilot, uh, Pilot V pens. Um, yeah. Cool. Not always, sometimes I use pencils. Yeah. Hey, David. Hey, Fred. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> I'll show you my sketch and then my daughter is sketching too as well. Yeah. Whoa. Nice. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so my daughter. Got hey, Leia. She's a little bit shy right now, but she's done a few sketches actually. Leia is a future FIU student, you guys. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, wow. Come on, Leia. Say hi. Nice. <laughs> if it was her brother, he'd be on the screen. Oh, he'd be on the screen right away. Now. <laughs> to keep him outside the room. <laughs> so, you know, the thing about drawing these, uh, this building too, is that this building is exactly the same uh, time period as the city hall building in Los Angeles, and which is the building that, of all the buildings that look like, there was a lot of towers that got built in the twenties for different governments. That's the most famous one because it's you know you always see it in Hollywood films. But so the 1925 City Hall in Los Angeles, which is also the one that's on their, you know, their uh, police badges, that's like the same period and really similar building. Um, but if there's one, there's one that if you really want to look it up that's super funky is the state capital of uh, Nebraska, also from about the same time period. And it's a tower, but because it's Nebraska, it's like surrounded by like hundreds of miles of prairie on, well, originally on every side. So it's a really super cool building. It's more Art Deco, though, than our uh, our building. Um, well, if no one has any questions, um, I'm going to wrap up the conversation. I hope, you know, you guys learned, because I definitely learned today, and I just felt like being right back in history class. It was a great lesson, even just the little I sketched. I'm going to add some more details to my sketches after this conversation. But I just want to thank everyone that joined the call. I apologize for, you know, for someone hacking us. But nonetheless, it was a great conversation. And I want to thank you so much, Professor, for spending this time with us. My pleasure. I'm, and I feel really honored to be welcomed, you know, into this. And I'm just going to take a picture of all of you guys and then post it. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So, well, um, if... You know, so our next episode is on the 2nd of August. And if you're interested in knowing who the guest is and the building beforehand, you can head over to our website, visit our website at layersofdesign.online and subscribe. And we'll keep you up to date with everything. So please tag us at layersofdesign underscore and leave the hashtag, hashtag layersofsketches. Thank you so much for being a part of today's conversation. Thank you all. And it's so good to see all of you guys. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you guys. Have a great Sunday. Bye. Bye.